Well, good morning. It's good to see you all out there this morning. I want to welcome you as Andrew just did, but I want to extend my own welcome to each and every one of you. We're glad to have you. We're grateful for our visitors this morning, and hopefully uh, we get to see you again. Our, uh, our text this morning comes from Psalm 96, so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and, and turn there with me. And while you're turning, I just want to read to you our mission statement or our vision statement, if you will. Kind of keep this in our, in our minds. You'll find it on the front of your bulletin, so if you're ever curious what we're all about here, this is sort of a breakdown. Obviously, it's, we're, we're, there's many things that you could say that would shake out of this, but we believe that Union Baptist Church exists to glorify God by growing disciples of Jesus Christ in community. So that's, that's kind of the vision in a nutshell, why we uh, are here, what we're about. Uh, and then obviously the membership class will help flesh some of that out in more particular detail. But that is what we see our existence being about here at Union Baptist Church. So if you have your Bibles, Psalm 96, we're going to read all 13 verses. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord, that's Jehovah, the covenant God, he made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to Jehovah, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the, before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples and faithfulness. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that we see a God who has created all things, a God who reigns and rules righteously and justly over all things. And God, I know as sure as I say those words that there are times in my own life and there are times in lives of the people that are here, and maybe some are in that spot right now this morning, that we don't feel like the world is, is being... Uh, ruled over it all. It seems chaotic at times, God. It seems uh, dark and painful. But God, the testimony of your word is, is trustworthy and true. It cannot fail. Indeed, it will not fail at one point to be true and therefore a true reflection of reality. And so God, as we experience those times of profound darkness, God, those, those times when the cloud hangs over our minds and over our heart, those times when we pray and it seems like lead that just falls from our mouth to the, to the ground, those times when it seems like you're a million miles away and that you're getting farther and farther out of grasp, out of reach, God, we know that those things are not ultimate truth. 
Your word is ultimate truth. And the reality is, is that you created a world over which you rule and in which you are deeply invested. Invested to the point that you sent your son into the world to become a part of the created order, to, to live a perfect life, to, to die a sacrificial death, to raise, to, to demonstrate your justice and your, uh, uh, your grace, God, and your willingness to forgive those who would turn to him. And so, God, we pray that as we preach the word and, and sing of the word this morning, God, as we gather here, that we would be those people who rather than, than just continuing to, to believe the same things or continuing to feel the same way dictated by our circumstances or emotions, God, or, or the problems that we face, that we would see the reality of your word, that you are a God worthy to be exalted, worthy to be praised, worthy to be shared with others because you are just and righteous and good. And you are coming again one day to bring judgment to the earth. And God, our desire, our longing, God, is to see more and more people rescued from the wrath of God, rescued from the, 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 the destructive power of sin. God, snatched up from the flames of hell. God, we believe in a real eternal punishment. We believe in a literal hell. We believe, God, that people will be there. But we also are deeply convinced and convicted that it is our, God, our God-given responsibility and privilege to take the gospel to the lost God to, to to preach the love and mercy and grace of God so that whoever believes in Jesus Christ can and will be saved God we desire for the salvation of the lost and we pray that through the teaching and preaching ministries of this church that you would gather in those who are lost God not just that but we pray thinking about our lesson this morning that that we know we exist in the image of God but we want to truly and fully and completely reveal that image of God by thinking right thoughts and saying right things and doing right actions, God, by having a morality that is shaped and formed by the word of God and, and living lives that are submitted to your truth. And we want to, to go beyond just bearing your image as human beings. We want to bear your image in a positive, forward-thinking way by saying the truth of the gospel, by living those realities in the world. And God, we want to be those kinds of people that help elicit your praise from others who have not yet begun to know the glory and the majesty and the grace and the love and the forgiveness of God available to them through Jesus Christ. God, would you make that reality dawn upon them this morning? We ask that you would in Christ's name. Amen. You know, we sing about the love of God. And I think for a lot of us, we know it intellectually, and yet so often we don't feel and experience the love of God. I think there's in our heart a lack of faith and a doubt that causes us to think maybe that God doesn't truly love us. And uh, yet what that's, I think the second or third verse of the, the first song said, my, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. That is truly how we know the Lord's love for us is that we, uh, he has borne our sins and we don't bear it anymore. Maybe this morning you came in and you have a burden of sin. Maybe you're like me and you, ha you haven't been perfect this week and you've seen ways in which your life is not in step with uh, the law of God. And, and maybe you feel beaten down and maybe you feel discouraged. The encouragement this morning is that we bear our sin no more, that God loves us perfectly. And what a great thing to, to meditate and contemplate on this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful this morning that we do not bear our sin.
but that you have borne it in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's because of this that we can proclaim no matter what's going on in our lives that it is well with our soul. Lord, it is well with our soul because you love us. Lord, that astonishes us to think that you could love people like us. And yet that, that is exactly what you've said in your word. We believe that this morning. We pray that you would help our unbelief and that you would help us to know and experience your goodness and your love toward us. We pray, Lord, as we give this morning, that we would give from hearts of love for you and concern for the loss that the gospel might continue to go forth in this, uh, in this community and all over the world. And it's in Christ's name that we pray it. Amen. Thank you to Daniel and to all those involved in leading us in worship this morning. I think the Lord was honored in that, and I, I know I was encouraged. Take your Bibles this morning and t- turn to the book of Ephesians. We're back in Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to be in verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 14, or chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Just make sure everybody's awake. Make sure you're, you're paying attention there. All right. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, this is the continuation of Paul's prayer uh, that began really in verse number one. And it's important that you understand the the context in which Paul is offering this prayer because our understanding and our grasp of what he's praying for is going to be directly related to exactly what he's been teaching and and telling these Ephesian believers. And so you you remember that the main point of chapter 2 and and into chapter 3 is that Paul has been teaching about the work of God redeeming a people from every every diverse group of humanity and uniting them in one body in in the church, uh, bringing all of his people, redeemed Jews and Gentiles, all together in in one body. That has been the theme. And uh, we remember the the teaching of what we saw last week, that, that in the Old Testament, the people of God were the Jewish people. They were the descendants of Abraham. But now in the gospel, as the Messiah has come, that plan has been broadened out to include not just Jewish people, but people from all over the world, people of every nation and every tribe and and every tongue. And so we've seen this in in chapter 2. We can just look really quickly and run through this. You see this in, in verses 11 through 13. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. So he's saying, you Gentile people, you were cut off from all of the promises. Think about all the promises that you find in the Old Testament, all of the covenants. Those covenants and promises were directed toward the descendants of Abraham. It was for the Jewish people. But he's saying now in Jesus Christ, all of humanity, all all the diverse groups within humanity have been brought in and made to participate in those promises. And that's the good news of, of the gospel. We remember that the Jewish people, they knew that God was a savior and they were looking for a Messiah, but they were thinking that this Messiah would just be for the Jewish people. But when Jesus came, he came to save people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And so we see that's what he did. In verse 14 of chapter 2, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility. There's no this no longer this dividing wall between Jew and, and Gentile. He created in verse 15 one new humanity in the place of, of two. In verse six, 16, he reconciled us both to God in one body. Not two different groups, but one group who have now been reconciled to God. In verse 18, we, both Jew and Gentile, have access to one father through through the spirit we both have the same spirit the the spirit of adoption that makes us sons of God and so we have one father there is one family then in verse 19 we're called fellow citizens uh there there's one people we belong to the same household in verse 19 and in verse number 20 we are one building being built into a temple for God And so that's the main theme of what Paul has been dealing with. There were two people. There were Jews who were the people of God to whom God made promises of redemption and salvation. And there were Gentiles. But now in Jesus Christ, he's brought all of that together so that all of humanity can share in and experience this salvation. All of humanity can be saved from their sins. And then in chapter 3, he begins this prayer. And he says, for this reason, in verse number one, for this reason, because of what he's been explaining, this this bringing together of of one new humanity, uh, a redeeming of of God's people for this reason. And he begins to pray. We remember we said that last week. Verse one, he starts this prayer, uh, but but like Jared does sometimes, and like I do, you start a prayer and then you get diverted and you start talking about something else and then you come back to it, uh, right? We we all do that when, when we're praying, right? And that's what Paul does. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, and he begins this prayer, but then he kind of goes back and he starts to talk about this mystery again, that God is going to redeem a people. And he says, I'm a steward. I've been entrusted with this mission of God to, to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel that God would save all people. And we see that in verse 6. The mystery is, the, the mystery that he's been entrusted with is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It was a mystery, he said. For generations past, nobody knew that, but now through Jesus Christ, the gospel has been made available for all people. That mystery has been revealed. And Paul says, I I was entrusted with that mystery. And so Paul, in those verses, down through verse 13, really kind of diverges from his prayer. And he says, this is the... The, the mission, this is my ministry that I've been given as the Apostle Paul to proclaim this mystery. But in verse 14 now, he's like, all right, 
You know, it's like he's a timeout and he, he got diverted there a little bit. Now, verse 14, he's like, all right, I'm getting back into this prayer. And so you see in verse 14, uh, the, the first phrase there, for this reason, I bow my knees. And so he's now back into this prayer. And that's what we're looking at this morning, then, is, is the prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Ephesian believers, for the church, and I think for, for us as, uh, as a church and as the people of God. So Paul is just resuming that prayer. And I think it's important, let me just say this, I think it's important in understanding what's going on in this prayer. What is Paul praying for? It's important to know what he's been teaching in order to understand why it is he's praying the thing that he's praying. It makes sense if we understand it in that context. And he's telling us, I think, here the reason that he's, that he's praying. Namely, he is praying because he knows God's plan is to unite very diverse people together in one, in one body. And let me ask you a question. What happens when you bring diverse people together? What, what happens so often when, when people are brought into close proximity with one another, people who are politically, religiously, and, and otherwise different, ethnically, racially different, diverse groups, what typically happens is usually there's conflict. Usually there is hate, hatred. Usually, or maybe not usually, but oftentimes there's even violence. And you see this all over the world. Anytime you get various diverse groups of people coming together in close proximity, there's hatred and often violence and a clash and now you have these people who are so different and had such a hatred for each other Jews hated Gentiles and Gentiles hated Jews there was a just a a, a disdain that they had for one another the Jews thought we're the people of God we're religious we're good we're clean these people are vile they're dirty and they're wicked and the Gentiles resented the Jews because of that and and they had hatred in toward the Jewish people. And so now Paul's saying, guess what? God's bringing these two people together and he's redeeming both of them. And he's not doing this in a way that kind of just keeps it separate. Okay, I'm going to save you Gentiles, but you kind of stay over here. And I'm going to save you Jewish people, but you kind of stay segregated over here. No, he says uh, he's redeeming them in one body. He's bringing them not only into one body, but into one family. They're one people now. And so Paul because of this, I think is praying a prayer for love. He's praying that these diverse people coming together in close proximity in the church would have love for one another. And that really is the main theme of what we see here. Paul is praying that God would strengthen the faith of these believers so that Christ would have a greater presence within them, resulting in them both experiencing and expressing the love of Christ. And through all of this, the church will bring glory to God. That is the point of this text. So we're just going to dig in here. And now the interesting thing about this text is it, as, as a prayer, uh, it, it just seems like almost like railroad cards, uh, cars. He just kind of puts one phrase and then he adds another phrase, and then he adds another phrase, and it, it can get kind of difficult to parse through all of this, but I think if we understand the context and understand the, the big point of what he's praying for, we can unpack it, and I think it will be meaningful for us. And what I want us to see this morning is that, listen, this isn't just an exercise in coming to understand something of the historical context of the Bible, okay? This, you know, so far, we've been explaining things. It could almost come across as a, as a history lesson. 
you know, the Jewish and Gentile people coming together. Okay, well, you know, no big deal. We're all Gentiles here. This doesn't really have application. But, but the application is here for us as well. We are, as a church, seeking to be a loving community. Jared read our mission statement this morning. We exist to glorify God by growing disciples in community, in a community of love. And and the reality is that all of us, whether it's a racial preference or whether it's just our personalities, we have things that drive us apart from other people. And we need this prayer as much as these Ephesian believers did. We need God to strengthen our faith so that Christ will dwell in us, so that we will be a people of love who express that love toward one another. And so this isn't just a prayer that Paul is praying for them back there. It's a prayer that every one of us ought to be praying for our church here this morning. So let's un- unpack this, uh, unpack this uh, passage this morning, this prayer. The first thing that we see is that God is the source of Christ's love in us. God is the source of Christ's love in us. He says, uh, we say here that this is a prayer right away. I bow my knees before, uh, before the Father. This idea of bowing, that wasn't necessarily always the typical format in which they would pray in biblical times. Oftentimes they would pray standing. In, in fact, probably most often they would pray standing. But these words and, and this sort of form of prayer, bowing before God on your knees, is indicative, indicative of a sort of earnestness and an unusual emotional uh, emotion that the Apostle Paul felt. I think there's a couple things that this indicates. One is just a, a reverent dependence. This being on his knees before the Father, is, it is a posture of recognition. It is a, a posture of worship. Uh, before God. It's a recognition of God's greatness and power. It's also a posture of begging. Prayer is a petition. And Paul is so earnest to see this. He's so desirous for the Ephesian church, and I think for uh, more broadly all of the church, to be a place that is known for by its love of, of Christ uh, for one another, that, that he falls to his knees in, in, in an earnest desire. When a person falls to their knees, that action typically is a, a display of their inner sense of need. People usually only bow down on their knees when there is some sort of sense of a, a real desperate need. Have you ever been there th- before? You know, I pray every day and typically, unfortunately, I don't feel that sense of desperation, but there are times and there are moments in your life where there is something so great, something so big, some need that is so pressing upon you that you just simply fall to your knees and pray to the Lord in desperation. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. He's showing his earnestness. He's showing his dependence on the Lord because Look, this is what we need to realize and what Paul is is showing us even in his posture here is that if this is going to happen, it's going to have to be a work of God. If these people coming together in a community of love, if that is going to happen, it's going to be something that comes from God and not from, from us. And so he prays, I bow my knees, he says, before the Father from whom every family or it could be all the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. And so he prays to the Father. That word whole family, 
where, where, where it says there the whole family is named from this father. I think, I think even in the way that he addresses God, he's addressing this particular need of bring, bringing diverse people together. He's saying, look, we all have one father. That word, that word father is the idea of one uh, main patriarch that is sort of the head over this, this big family. It's the word that is used of Joseph in, in the Gospel of Luke when it says he's of the house and lineage of David. David was the father of that family. And now Paul is praying. He's saying, I'm praying for the church. I'm praying that we will be built up in love. I'm, I'm praying that we would know the love of Christ for one another. And I'm praying to our heavenly father, who is the father of the whole family. All right. So as much as you think you might be different from this person or that person, as much as naturally speaking, uh, in, in terms of your biological descent, you might have different fathers and different family trees. But spiritually speaking, you have one father if you're part of the family of God. And therefore, we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so he's praying to the father. You remember back in chapter two, verse 18. That he says this, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We don't have different dads. We're not part of different families. If you're a child of God, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you're part of the whole family that has one Father, and God is that Father. So don't miss that connection, even in the, the address of, of who he is praying to. And then he prays to the Father. He says, I want you to answer this in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, according to the riches of his glory. You know, if my children come up to, to me and they request something of me as their father, they, they say, Dad, can I have a dollar? I can do that. I can give them a dollar because that's according to my riches. <laughs> uh, and it ain't much. It doesn't get much, much more than a dollar. But I can do a dollar according to my riches. But here, the father that he's praying to is a father who has infinite riches. He is a father whose supply doesn't run out. He doesn't have just a little bit. His riches are inexhaustible riches. His grace and his power are infinite. What this means is that not only can he give you an abundant supply to meet whatever you need, whatever power, whatever grace, whatever strength you need, he can give that to you. But guess what? After he's given that to you, that power, that grace, that strength, guess what? He's none the poorer for it. It's not like, well, I had this much grace or this much strength or this much power, but now I've given some of it and so, so my supply is depleting. No, no, he's, he's a father who has inexhaustible riches. He doesn't run out. He can give as much as he needs to, as much as he wants to, and yet there is still an endless, infinite, inexhaustible source. And so not only does Paul pray to one who has an interest as the father in making this whole family thing work, he has that interest because he's our father and he wants his brothers and sisters, these children, to, to get along, but he also has the power to bring it about. And so Paul prays to him. Listen, this morning, I think sometimes when we pray to God, this is just a side note, uh, this won't cost any extra, uh, but, but as a side note, when we pray to God, man, how often do we pray with little faith as if God doesn't have enough? We pray, I think, I think mentally, I think we know it, right? We have a knowledge that God has inexhaustible riches to, to give to us, but, but maybe, maybe we just don't 
really believe that in our heart. Or, or maybe we, we make some kind of, you know, uh, some kind of exception just to make us feel better. You know, well, if God wants to, he can do this. Listen, he's our father. He loves us. And we ought to pray to, want, pray to him as one who has inexhaustible riches. You see, verse 20, this is the way that we ought to think about God when we go to him in prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. This is the power that he has. This is the glory of his riches that whatever you imagine, whatever you imagine, whatever you are asking of the Lord in your wildest dreams, in in those prayers that you are praying to God, listen, he can do abundantly more than that. So don't set limits on God in prayer. Don't try to safeguard. Well, I don't want to ask too much. I don't want to. I don't want to act as if you know I, I, I'm praying for something that I know is never going to happen. No, no. We come to God in such a way that we believe everything that we ask He can do. And guess what? He can do abundantly more than that. And so we ought to pray in that manner. John Newton said, "Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring." For his grace and power are such, never, none can ever ask too much. And so he prays to the Father according to the, according to the riches of his glory. And then he says that he may grant you to be strengthened with power in his spirit. He may grant it to you. Our strength, I think what Paul is saying here, he's praying that we would be strengthened in our faith. And we're going to get to that. But, but it is something that must be granted from the Lord. If we desire to be strengthened in our faith and see our church strengthened, it will come through God granting it to us. Listen, you cannot live the Christian life in your own strength. You have abundant resources in the Lord, but you have not enough resources in yourself. And so this strength, this love, this faith that we need to be built up in is something that God grants to us. I think the application here, again, side note, is that we ought to be people of prayer. Look, if you're trying to live the Christian life on your own, if you're trying to live it out in your own power, in your own strength, you are going to come up short. And maybe that's where some of you are. Maybe you keep falling. Maybe you keep stumbling. Maybe you're disappointed because you don't see that growth in your faith and in your life. And and you're thinking, what's going on here? And I would just say, are you praying? Are you praying on a daily basis and asking this God who has endless, infinite, inexhaustible resources to strengthen you? Are you asking him? He may grant it to you. It is a call to prayer. I think that's what we need to be doing then as a church. We need to be like the Apostle Paul. We need to be hitting our knees and praying that God would strengthen us. The church in America, our church, the churches in our community are weak. They are weak. We have been blessed. We have been given an abundance of resources and we are utterly and completely weak. We are doing a third of what we could be accomplishing by God's grace if we were dependent on him. And so we ought to be praying. And what is the substance of his prayer then? He's praying here that they would be strengthened. They would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being. So this word power is a word that means ability or capability. And so he's praying that God would grant the church his strength to do what was otherwise what they otherwise could not do but we got to ask the question what is he he doesn't say directly in here 
He asked for them to be strengthened with the power of the Spirit in, in your inner being. But what is it that's being strengthened? And I think the answer is, is faith. From, from the context and just understanding, trying to understand what Paul is saying here, I think it is our faith that needs to be strengthened. Uh, it's, it's in your inner being. You know, most Christians I know, and, and you can probably identify with this, I know that I can identify with this, most Christians I know experience peaks and valley when it comes to, valleys when it comes to their faith. There are moments when our faith is so strong and everything seems so certain and sure. And then there are moments when our faith is weak and when we don't seem to have certainty about anything. And here's the reality for us. In our Christian walk, living out obedience to the Lord, it is directly related to whether our faith is weak or whether it is strong. Do you know the Bible teaches that, that there can be a faith that is greater or a faith that's smaller? There can be a stronger faith and a weaker faith. So you remember Jesus talking to his disciples all the time. What did he say? Oh, ye of little faith, right? Faith isn't one of those things that you just either have or you don't have. It's something that comes in degrees. There's stronger and weaker faith. There's greater and smaller faith. And so the, the disciples could be called those of little faith. Jesus said, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed. So our faith wavers at times and at other times it's strong. Paul says in Romans 12, 3, that uh, each of us should think of ourselves according to the measure of faith that we've been given. So, you know, the stronger your faith is, the easier obedience is going to be. The more you're going to be able to follow the commands of Christ. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. And really, just in general, I'm drawing that connection. But then you, you also see in verse 17, don't you? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts, how? Through faith. So I think that's what he's praying here. I'm praying for you, church, that you would be strengthened in your faith so that then Christ would dwell in your hearts. And that is, that is the result of being strengthened in your faith, that Christ dwells in your heart. And we've got to ask the question then, well, doesn't Christ always dwell in our heart? If you're a believer, you pray and, and you express your faith in Jesus Christ and the Lord saves you, all of us know that the Bible teaches that the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of Christ enters into us. And so the Spirit of Christ is there. So, so why is he praying for believers that they would be strengthened in their faith so that Christ would dwell in them? Doesn't Christ already dwell in them? And I think the point is this. The, the goal of this strengthening of their faith is that Christ would, that his presence within them would be stronger and to a greater degree. There is a variation of our experience of Christ within us. Sometimes Christ seems near, and at other times he seems distant. Sometimes he is the controlling factor in our life, and at other times when we're walking in disobedience, He's not the controlling factor in our life. Does he go away? Is Christ with us sometimes and then, and then other times he's not with us? What's the deal there? Well, the deal is this. It's according to your faith. As you're walking in faith, Christ's presence is more real. His, his controlling influence in your life is to a greater degree than those other times when you're not walking in faith. He dwells in us, I think this verse is indicating, through faith. And the greater our faith, the greater our awareness, 
and experience of his presence and the greater the control he exercises over us. So what Paul is saying here then, he seems to be asking is is that our faith would be strengthened with the power of God, by the power of God, so that Christ's presence within us would be greater, both in our awareness of Christ and in Christ's control over us. And then do you see the result of that? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. I told you this was like a train and there's just one car after the next and we got to kind of get one and then we're moving to the next. There's a process here that that is moving. There seem to be steps in in the, the prayer. And so are you following this progression this morning? God grants you to be strengthened in your inner being, to strengthen your faith so that next step, Christ would dwell in your hearts. He would have greater control. There would be greater awareness of Christ within you so that now you would be rooted and grounded in love. So the result of your faith being strengthened is Christ dwelling in you in a richer, more fuller way. The the result of Christ dwelling in you in that richer and fuller way is that you are now rooted and grounded in love. You see, if Christ is living in you, then what is going to be coming out of you is love. This is one one of the chief things that's going to be a a marker of your life. Christ was a man of love. God is is a God of love. And so if God, through his spirit and through his son, is living in you and exerting a controlling influence on your attitude and your behavior, the result is going to be love. This is why it is so there's such an inextricable link. The two things are linked together. If Jesus is in you, you're a person of love. And if you're not a person of love, then Jesus isn't in you. And that's that's what Paul is praying here. That's the, the goal of all of this, that you would be strengthened in faith, that Christ would dwell in you. As a result of Christ dwelling in you, you would be an individual and we would be a collective group of individuals who are loving. Now remember the issue that Paul is dealing with, right? And and this helps us understand the purpose of the prayer. We're bringing people together who aren't naturally loving toward one another. And Paul's saying for this reason, because because of this reality, Jew and Gentile, diverse people being brought together in one body, in one family, because of this, I'm praying that God would strengthen you, that Christ would dwell in you, and that you would be rooted and grounded in love. That's the goal of the prayer. Now, I think the next thing that we see then in verses 18 and 19 that th- is that the church is the location of our experience of Christ's love. That the church is the experience is the location of our experience of Christ's love. So let's look at verses 18 and 19 now. That you verse 17 that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What's he saying here? He's saying, church, I want you to know the love of Christ. I want you to know it. 
Those words there, to comprehend, that, that word literally means to see something, like to catch up to it and, and, and to get it. But when we're talking about in a mental way, uh, what, it, what it's saying is that you can grasp this reality. I want you all to grasp the love of Christ. And I want you to know it. That word is a word that, that means more than just know it intellectually. I want you to experience it. I want you to know the love of Christ in a kind of personal, experiential kind of way. That's what I'm praying this for. That, that's the reason. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, here, uh, that he says, I want you to know the love of Christ. I want, you to, I want you to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Those words there, he's kind of piling up words there Basically, he's saying, I want you to be able to grasp something that is so big you can't grasp it. it. The height and depth and length and width of it is so big, it is so great that you can't grasp it, but I want you to comprehend it. I want you to grasp the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he says, I want you to know, it, that, that is made even more clear in the next statement. Uh, with the saints, uh, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? In verse 19, and to know the love of Christ... Listen to this, that surpasses knowledge. This love of Christ for you, this love of Christ for us is so great, you can't know it, but I want you to know it. It's so big and deep and wide that you can't comprehend it, but I want you to comprehend it. What is he saying here? I think he's saying this, I want you to have a taste of it. I want you to experience it in a real way in which you know it. You're not going to know the full depths of it. You're not going to know the greatness of the love of Christ, but I want you to know what you can know in a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of limited way. I want you to know it in an experiential way. Well, how do we come to know the love of Christ? How do we come to experience the love of Christ? I think there's a key phrase here that I, I skipped over a minute ago in verse 18 that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Why does he add that phrase? With all the saints. What does that have to do with knowing the love of Christ? Can't I know the love of Christ on my own? Can't I stay at home and know the love of Christ? Can I watch a preacher on TV and know the love of Christ? No, I think what he's saying here is that there's an experiential kind of love, an experiential kind of knowledge of the love of Christ that can only happen in community. It can only happen when we come together as a church and, and listen to this, when, when Jared is demonstrating the love of Christ, Christ is in him, Christ is, his faith is strong and he's living out his faith. He's obedient to Christ. And because of that, he's a loving person. He, he's demonstrating the love of Christ to me. I can know the love of Christ because of Jared's expression of the love of Christ to me. We can know the love of Christ in that kind of experiential way when we come together and we are rooted and grounded in love and we are demonstrating that love back and forth between one another. And it's in the church then that we experience and come to know a little fraction of the love of Christ. I think that's what he's saying there when he says with all the saints together. This is something that you experience together. Christ is in you. And if Christ is in you, then your actions are controlled by him. Then the love that you expressed is really the love of Christ. And so it is 
in the church that we come to experience that love. And then finally, this morning, we see uh, that Christ's love in the church brings glory to God. You see this in verse number 20. Christ's love in the church brings glory to God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is what Paul's focus is. This is what his prayer, how he concludes it. Why is he praying this? He's praying this because he knows that through the church, through these diverse people coming together in a community of love, God will receive glory. He's the one that's created this. He's the one that's brought this about. He's the one who who has taken Jews and Gentiles and brought them into the same family, have taken people who naturally hated each other and brought them into a community of love. And so when we live out what Christ is doing in us and we express love to one another, God gets all the glory. The, the demons, the, the, the angels look on and they are astonished that these people who at one time hated each other are now in, in, in the same family and expressing the love of Christ toward one another. And so to God be glory in the church. That's what Paul is concerned about. And again, this goes back to our mission statement. We exist, why? To glorify God by growing disciples of Jesus Christ in this kind of loving community. But the ultimate goal of all of it is that God would be glorified. That's Paul's aim here. Jews and Gentiles, I want you to love each other. I want you to get along. I want the, the love of Christ to be experienced in this community so that Christ would be glorified. And that's why we're here this morning. The things that we do are not just an end in themselves discipleship and and this kind of community. It's not just an end in itself. It's because we are here to glorify God. That ought to be our goal and our aim. Let me give you a few, three, let me say three quick application points. I promise they will be quick. First, uh, pray that God would strengthen our faith. This is what Paul was praying. What should you pray? Lord, give us enough food. Just protect us and watch over us. We pray for simple little things. God wants us to pray for more. He wants us to pray for spiritual realities. Pray that God would strengthen your faith so that that the life of Christ would take root in your own heart and Christ would begin to live out of you. Pray that God would strengthen your faith. Yield. Secondly, yield yourself to Christ and he will lead you to love. Yield yourself to to Jesus Christ, as he's leading you, as the spirit of God, as Christ within you is leading you to express that love to other brothers and sisters or to other people in our community, yield to that. Don't suppress that. Don't ignore that. Yield to the spirit of Christ within you that he might control your life. Thirdly, prioritize the church. The church is not a meaningless institution. It is the location where God is doing a great work And it is in the church, it is in the church that God is receiving glory. God receives more glory, not when we stay separated from the church and we say, I can worship God over here by myself. Yeah, you can worship God over there by yourself. You can believe by Jesus Christ uh, and Jesus Christ at home, certainly. 
But God's aim and God's goal is not to leave you in isolation. His goal and his aim is to bring you into a body and and to unite you with other believers. And he receives glory when people who would struggle otherwise to get along and love one another are brought into a loving community. The church is important and you ought to prioritize it. Let's close in prayer this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love of Christ. We thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And I do pray for Union Baptist Church. I pray for myself, Lord, for all of us that you would strengthen our faith, that Christ might dwell in our hearts, that that he might be the controlling, dominating force in the way that we live and the way that we think and the attitudes that we have. Christ, will you dwell in us this morning? Will you live your life through us? Or will you make us a people of love? that we might be a demonstration of your, your power and that you might receive all the glory. We do this, Lord, knowing that you can do it. You have all power. You're able to do abundantly more than we ask or think. And it's in Christ's name that we pray it. Amen.